everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name's Shauna. And my name is Ashley. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in. Okay, this is episode three of the Battle of the Somme. <laughs> we did it. Three f- episodes. We could be Dan Carlin's hardcore history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is at <laughs> least three hours of the Somme, I think. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> Way more intense than anything I expected. <laughs> it's an epic battle. Oh, is it ever? So I thought I would just start this episode with a little mini summary just to catch people up really, really high level um, so we know where we're jumping into on this episode because we actually, we recorded episode two and three together and I had to find a point where I said, this is enough in the editing. (laughs) (laughs) So it might have been a bit of an abrupt stop, but I just had to stop it at some point. <laughs> That's okay. But a summary would be good because I know for sure there were parts when we were recording where I think I was just zoning out because I was so tired. <laughs> so <laughs> remind me, Shauna, where are we? Okay, so the Battle of the Somme was a, about a three month battle. The first day of the battle was the deadliest day in British military history because they lost something. I think it was like. 52,000 dead in one day, but the Canadians weren't there. The Canadians actually didn't come in till September. The battle started in July. So they had a lot of time before to do, to well, to be killed before the Canadians even got there. The Canadians' <laughs> first battle was the Battle of fleur Corselet, and that started on September 15th of 1916. Um... And this was a, a point in the war where things were actually getting really interesting because they, the higher-ups kind of realized that they needed to make changes. They couldn't just send their people over up on the top in their cardboard boots with crappy rifles in the middle of the day with no cover. This wasn't working anymore. So they started kind of refining the creeping barrage and they brought in tanks in this battle, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see, you know, two years after the war starts, some changes, some little minor changes from the top down. So where we really left off in the actual battle, though, is the Canadians were at Fleur Corselet. Well, they were at Corselet. Those are two different villages. And the Canadians had taken a point called the Sugar Factory. That was a German stronghold, but they got it. And the Germans had retreated back into the town of Corselet, and the Canadians were getting ready for another push. Since that had been such a success, they wanted to keep up that momentum, and they wanted to push the Germans back even farther. But the Germans were in the town. They had cellars as cover. They had points, like sniper points, up in towers. They they had a really good position in there. So we're going to see now what the Canadians can do in the town and see what happens. Now that the Canadians had taken the sugar factory at Corselet, Bing moved on to the secondary objective of taking more of Corselet to the north. This was supposed to start at 6 p.m., 
but it was a rush to get ready. The 2nd Division's 22nd and 25th Battalions would be the main attackers through the town, but Richard Turner, commander of the 2nd Division, and Brigadier Archie McDonnell didn't get the order to attack until 1 p.m. They scrambled to find their officers and finish the briefings before the bombardment began. There was barely any reconnaissance done, so they didn't know what they were going to go into and what they were going to encounter in the town. Or even before then, since they needed to cross two kilometers of open ground. So there was a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, but they did have a creeping barrage to support them. So while there were a few places to take cover, there was a wall of shells in front of them. So that was a really good tactic. Really good innovation that they're finally learning. Communication with officers was often lost in the chaos of battle. So in the move, the battalion commanders... Thomas Tremblay and Edward Hilliam actually led their troops into battle, urging their men on. The 22nd and 25th rushed into the town, bayonets fixed, and ready for close fighting, which they did with enthusiasm. They reached the town. Many Germans were either fleeing or surrendering with hopes of being of avoiding being run through with their bayonet. Tim Cook, again, he's like my hero. Yeah, his, <laughs> he has a red his books are great. They're, they're so nice. I, I really like reading them. Um, he has a nasty quote, though, in one of his books referring to no weapons barred combat. Rifle butts, bayonets, shovels, and teeth all came into play. Yikes. The, yeah, the whole quote is pretty graphic, and I didn't write it down. I, I'm going to leave it out. But it got really, really brutal at Corselet. The Germans lost their hold there, but they attempted to take it back with 17 separate counterattacks, and each one was rebuffed by the exhausted Canadians. Thankfully, another useful innovation was the use of the Air Force for communication, because as the troops moved farther away from the HQ, they also lost the ability to communicate with their artillery support and reinforcements. But pilots were running information back and forth, and the artillery was able to help push the Germans back from retaking the town. And finally, after four days, they finally counted Corselet as a success. Wow. Brutal. Yeah, they didn't have much in the way of reinforcements. And they just kind of, they kept going because they had to. I don't know what else you do when, when you're in the middle there. So they just kept going. Uh, the Canadians did suffer 7,230 casualties during their first major engagement at the Somme, but at least they could say that they succeeded, and that was a huge measure of pride for them. Mm -hmm. The British on their left and right also had some successes. On the left, the 2nd British Corps advanced 400 meters closer to Thiepful, and on their right, the British captured Fleur and Mar Martin... I didn't look this one up. Oh, I thought you were going to be the only one messing up names today. <laughs> Thanks. No problem. Uh, Martin Putch. Pook? I have no idea. Didn't come across no, that know. one. Fleurs and Martin Putch. <laughs> sure. Go with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That town, uh, General Hanks still wouldn't have his breakthrough, though. But at least there were some positive pushes, and he could use those to keep the pursuit going. 
So at this point, the landscape at the Somme was horrendous. Uh, there's a quote I have. Uh, the towns you hear are simply torn to pieces. You have a hard time to find a brick that is not in two pieces. Dead men and broken shells and shell holes, barbed wire, wagons, guns, horses are strewn around. The stick would turn a... Oh, sorry, the stink would turn a skunk sick. Say that five times fast. Yeah. <laughs> this was uh, a quote from James Kirk of P.I., and that was how we described the psalm in a letter home. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because, yeah, um, like I say, villages that were captured, they weren't villages anymore. They were ruins. There was nothing. So Yeah, there was absolutely nothing left. Yeah. The weary soldiers were rotated to the rear for what little rest they could get and to receive any medical treatment both physical for both physical and mental conditions. Shell shock was still an ongoing issue for the soldiers and the Somme only exacerbated the problem and in some cases exposing new soldiers to the horrors of war and sometimes sending many men back into it with minimal treatment for dealing with the trauma from previous battles. The replacements took their turn holding the line, continuing to make small pushes forward, and waiting for the next major engagement, which would come on September 26th at Thiepville Ridge, which was about a thousand meters northwest of Corselette. This was high ground, so there's no question to the Germans which position the Allies wanted to capture next, so it took away any element of surprise. They knew, and they were just dug in waiting for them. The objectives for Thiepful Ridge would be a series of trenches, the Zollerngraben, the Hessian, and the Regina Trench. General Arthur Curry's 1st Division would attack on the left side to take Zollerngraben, Hessian Trench, and a section of Regina Trench, while Turner's 2nd Division had the job of providing cover and protection for the 1st while taking a few minor trenches. They started with an artillery bombardment, but I couldn't tell if it was a creeping barrage I, I don't think it was this time, possibly because it was a very tight battlefield, but Curry was in charge of the main offensive, so I guess if it wasn't, it would make sense, and if if it was, it was something he would have pushed for, so I, I'm not totally clear on that, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, zero hour for this one was 12.35 p.m. on September 26th, with the bombardment that first fell short, then bombed the German line then moved 150 meters past the line, but still fell short of the German rear guns, so it really didn't do a whole lot of damage to anybody. A little <laughs> a little sporadic, hey? <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of all over the place this time. I don't know who was on those guns, but somebody wasn't doing their job. I had too much rum ration. <laughs> there wasn't enough rum ration. <laughs> To add to the troubles, the men in the jumping-off point, which were the shallow trenches that they used to advance their position, were dug too narrow to fit many of the men in there, and the soldiers of the 13th Battalion were actually in the wrong place and took over 200 meters of the 31st Battalion's trenches. So there's a whole lot of confusion there. Uh, So to illustrate this battle in his book, The Sharp End, Tim Cook again... Thank you, Tim Cook. 
follows Private James Owen, who was only 15 when he started fighting with the 15th Battalion. Yikes. He was so young, just a baby. Um, he went over the top on the 26th at Thiepville, and he made it into one of the enemy trenches and was able to kill several German snipers. He talked about how the Germans were generally quick to surrender once the Canadians made it into the trenches, and he remembered sending several pr- prisoners to the Canadian lines, even without any escorts. He said that they just wanted out of it. But he was wounded in the leg after a shell hit the trench, but he kept moving in, a, in an attempt to consolidate what men were left. When he was close to collapsing because of his poor leg wound, he found a lieutenant who was sending a prisoner to the rear, and luckily he also was found by his older brother Cecil, who was actually only 17 himself. I can't imagine being a mom and having your 15-year-old and your 17-year-old being sent over to the war. It's um, it's kind of funny because in movies, they always make it sound very much like you don't send family members together um, for a couple of reasons. For one, so you're not losing men from one family. And two, you don't necessarily want to have that like relationship with men on the field like you don't want to have that close connection with them but it seems mm-hmm. like this is not the case well actually in i don't i don't know at what point in this war but that was actually a big selling point it's like hey you can sign up with all your buddies get all your friends you can all go over together and then they end up losing like entire towns of a generation of kids right yeah and then we have saving private ryan yeah That's true, but that's a different war. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But Cecil, the older brother, um, bandaged the wounds for James, and James was sent to the rear as well. The next day, James was only one of two men from his 12-man section that made it back. I'm sure he was thankful to Cecil and whoever this lieutenant was, but oof, man. Being a 15 or 16-year-old going through that. Is just messed right up. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. As Ashley said, there was a lot of back and forth battling. Like, I bombed them, so, you know, they're going to bomb me and back and forth. Um, and it seemed as soon as they could take a trench, the Germans would counterattack and take it right back. The soldiers fought through heavy machine gun fire and the Germans owned battlefield adaptations. They realized that the bombardment's primary targets were usually the trenches, obviously. So what they would do is they would camouflage their machine guns behind the lines to keep them intact. The men that made it to the enemy lines showed little mercy and took advantage of the deep trenches and dugouts that the Germans were able to create. But a lot of them were just mowed down if there were any machine guns left that had been pushed behind there. When they could get into the deep trenches, though, they would throw grenades and phosphorus bombs down into them and trap the Germans below the surface. So, you know, each were taking their own advantages where they could, I suppose. Mm -hmm. The attacking forces were continually weakening, and getting supplies and reinforcements to the new lines was really slow. The attacking men were supposed to carry, I think I mentioned this already, the 60-pound packs full of sandbags and shovels and other supplies to set up the defenses, but a lot of these packs didn't make it to where it was needed. The soldiers dropped them on purpose, or sometimes they, you know, it was an accident, everything fell out, or 
you know, it just got shot off of them in some cases. So, yeah, it was it was tough. Well, no kidding. <laughs> it's tough to make it through here. Um, the Germans tried to flank the Canadians on their left since a sort of salient was being formed at the ridge here. Uh, but runners were actually able to make it back to the rear position and alert the officers of the issue. So they quickly sent up the 10th Battalion forward and they soundly defeated the German attack. Uh, but it wasn't without loss. They did lose 13 officers and 446 soldiers. So I, it was actually pretty nasty, but compared to a lot of numbers, they beat them. Yeah. That was, that was a good thing. Yeah. Um, Thiefel Ridge continued to be fought over three days with counterattack after counterattack after counterattack. Uh, the Germans regrouped and pulled back to Regina Trench, which was a really heavy, heavily fortified area, and would take a full-scale attack for any hope of catcher, capturing it, which is actually where we're moving next. Holy moly. <laughs> I know there's a lot going on here, and that's just the Canadians. Oh, <laughs> gosh. I know. Oh, you, were, <laughs> you were joking when you said, you said there was a lot of material. No, I know, and this is... I'm only halfway through. Oh my god, are you serious? There's still two more battles here. <laughs> you might have to make three episodes, I, I know, I know, we're gonna cut this awkwardly somewhere in the middle and... <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um... <clears throat> let's go. The assault on Regina Trench was part of the Battle of Anchor Heights, and it was Canada's 2nd and 3rd Divisions led by the divisional commanders Turner and Lipset, and they had the objective of taking the trench system that ran the entire Canadian line of more than 3,000 metres. One of the biggest issues with attacking this trench system was the massive amount of barbed wire that had been laid in front. They had metres and metres in front of their trench of this... Bar this coiling barbed wire. Their reconnaissance determined that the artillery bombardment that General Bing ordered failed to remove the barbed wire, and while Turner and Lipset resisted pushing the attack forward in light of this news, Goff insisted to Bing that they continue as planned, leaving Turner and Lipset struggling with how to support their men while they knew it would be a slaughter. This is just kind of... Like, earlier on in this season, I made a big deal about attacking in broad daylight with no cover. But the barbed wire, the artillery not doing anything to the barbed wire is, like, a big thing that they keep doing over and over and over. And obviously, they just didn't have a solution for it yet, other than the tanks. Yeah, that's a tough one. But it's just a constant issue. Yeah, they're going to have to find something to deal with it. Oh, I think they might eventually. I don't know. Not yet, eventually. <laughs> the 2nd Division would take the main attacking position coming north from Corselet with support from the 3rd Division. While they were waiting in their trenches during the bombardment, they noticed that the Canadian shells were making their way back towards them. For some reason, the distance had been altered during the shelling, and they started bombing their own trenches. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <sighs> but luckily, there were some experienced officers in those trenches, and they quickly ordered all their men out to the rear and to save as many lives as possible. Because there wasn't 
anything they could do at that point except run the hell backwards. Well, thank goodness for that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So beyond the still intact barbed wire and friendly fire, General Goff decided to schedule a full in unison attack for 3.15 p.m. on October 1st. And according to Tim Cook, this gave all advantages to the Germans. I'm guessing it's because it would be a full attack altogether, basically shoulder to shoulder, in broad daylight with no cover. Yeah, not so. That's such a great idea. (laughs) No. And Tim Cook also makes it clear that we don't know why Goff made this decision and nobody else supported it. So we don't. We don't know what like what he was thinking. Why was it approved kind of thing? Yeah. Well, yeah. not even why was it approved. Why did he come up with this plan? I don't know. Because we even see that on the first day of the Somme where there was just too many men on the field and they get funneled into certain sections and they kind of don't fare so well. Yeah. I mean, you have thousands of men in a line. You take a machine gun, you can mow them all down. Especially if there's no cover or anything. It it just seems just stupid. But I don't know. That was the decision he made. And he's at the top there. And so he wasn't going to change his mind. What are they supposed to do? They don't really have a choice. Yeah. One more thing that made the Canadians have a difficult time in this field is that a fresh division of Marines was moved forward to the German lines as reinforcements and replacements, giving strength against the tired, battle-worn Canadians that didn't have that option to bring in a lot of reinforcements. And there's also a rumor being spread throughout the German soldiers that Canadians didn't take prisoners. So at this point, not a whole lot of them were surrendering. They were just going at it as hard as they could. So over the top they went, in broad daylight, knowing full well that they were running into almost certain death. But at least they were sent over the top with a creeping barrage, right? Yeah. No. (laughs) No. Unfortunately, this is one of those times, another one of those times, that the new technique fell short. Literally. It -hmm. failed to hit its target, and often the German sentries came forward instead of retreating downward into the trench again and surprising Canadians from the shell holes in front of their lines. Right. D Company from... The 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles was almost completely wiped out on the barbed wire before the trench. A Company made it into the trench, but wasn't able to hold it through the counterattacks. And the 5th CMRs, the Canadian Mounted Rifles, held on slightly better, but communication to the rear was really poor. Um, Remember, in this time, they either had to have runners go back and forth across the battlefield trying to relay their messages, Or they did have telephone wire stretching all the way across no man's land. But if a shell hit that wire, somebody had to go fix it. Mm -hmm. So the commanders in the rear had very little idea of what was actually happening in the front. Um, But in this case, they were able to send up some reinforcements and send in some heavy artillery to keep the Germans at bay to the north. I was going to say, I think you like read my mind because like this afternoon I was thinking about communication in the trenches and I'm like, if there was like a Gen Z person listening to this, would they understand how many hundreds of thousands 
of like meters of telephone wire they would need along all the battlefront. Because it's not like they didn't have radios and, and things like Like we crap on their communications um, a lot, but it was no easy task. No, it wasn't an easy task. And they didn't have much of a choice. They just, they didn't obviously didn't have that technology yet. And so they relied on huge amounts of telephone wire that I don't know how they fixed them. I'm guessing they just like spliced it together in the middle of being shelled. Or they had flags for the artillery a lot of the time. Men would hold up different colored flags or do different positions with their flags. That's all that they had. So what else are they supposed to do? I mean, I remember when I was little going from a corded phone to a cordless. Yes. That was so exciting. And that that gap in technology was in my lifetime. I can't imagine. Mm-hmm you know, having to deal with what they were dealing with. It's just crazy. But don't forget, they had pigeons. <laughs> I, did f- I, I did forget that they had pigeons, yes. I Nowhere in my research have I come up with pigeons. Really? Really. Oh, yeah, they totally <laughs> had pigeons. I, I have heard of that before, but I just didn't even connect that at all. <laughs> oh, yeah, they were used frequently. So, another reliable form of communication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, with all this crappy communication, not trying to sh** the pigeons there, but it probably wasn't very reliable. But after all this that they had to deal with, after 10 hours of back and forth in this section alone, the CMRs retreated. And by 5 a.m. on October 2nd, they moved back to the Hessian Trench after taking really heavy casualties. The 5th Brigade attempted to take Kenora Trench and Regina Trench. And don't worry if you can't picture this about what's going on. I'm, I was looking at a map as I was writing this, and it's so confusing So just know that the Canadians were pushing north along a thousand meter section of trench. And I'll find some maps and we'll put them maybe in our show notes and up on our social media to help somebody out if they they need it. So anyway, the 5th Brigade was moving in behind a creeping barrage after another barrage failed to clear the barbed wire when the shells started retreating back towards the Canadians again. This time, it tore through the attacking line as they were already in the battlefield, and there were 130 casualties just from friendly fire. They obviously hadn't perfected this tactic yet, which, I mean, they didn't have a lot of time or materials to practice with, but these screw-ups came at a really high cost. But all in all, this first attempt by the Canadians to fully take the Regina Trench was a failure. And it was mostly due to the inability of the higher-ups to back down and rethink their strategy. And it was also due to the artillery at best being ineffective and at worst killing our own soldiers. Well, these aren't stories uh, we've heard before. (laughs) No. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> these poor men. I know. Ugh. I feel like, you know, I say to my kids, I'm like, 
It sounds like I'm repeating myself and I'm getting very frustrated. Frustrated. <laughs> Are you getting frustrated too? When I have to tell them like 60 times to put on their socks. <laughs> I feel like I'm repeating myself. <laughs> Yeah, in the heart of repeating ourselves. So what did the high command decide to do with all the deaths and failure along the Canadian lines? They decided to send them back into battle seven days later, of course. Oh, okay. <sighs> General Curry was desperate at this point to find a way to take Regina Trench, but also save his men from the meat grinder. He decided to appeal to the Canadian HQ officers, including Major Alan Brook, or Brookie, which I think we'll discuss him in the future. Oh, okay. It's a familiar name. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think he's at Vimy. He's an Imperial officer with the Corps. He said, Brook, I want you to realize how much depends on the guns. My boys haven't got the kicks in them, which they had. I look to the guns to put them in Regina Trench. He wanted as many heavy guns as he as could be found to again attempt to wipe out that barbed wire and decimate the dis- defending lines before the infantry could move in. But even if they could damage the German lines significantly, making their way across the boggy battlefield seemed impossible in itself. The men lost their boots as they were sucked into the mud when shells exploded Bodies that were buried in no man's land were thrown up into the air, and even the heavy guns and shells started to sink before they could even fire around. Guns were clogged with heavy muck, and the fear of being suffocated in the wet, rotting ground was only matched by the fear of being shot to pieces by a German machine gun. Although the survival tactic many men had at this point, um, they adopted a fatalist attitude, which I mentioned earlier, and death would come when it was supposed to, and there was no dodging it. Luck. It was only pure luck that some men made it through while others were sucked down into the soggy battlefield, never to be recovered. Oh, brutal. So brutal. That was very descriptive. Uh, Yeah, uh, well, I got out my thesaurus on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Because how many times can you say suffocated or foggy or wet? (laughs) I know, I have that problem too. It's like, man, how many times have I said these words like over and over again? Mm -hmm. But this unhappy little battle that we're about to talk to was where Piper James Richardson, which Ashley should remember, rallied the men behind him to storm the trench, but also laid down his pipes for the last time. So if you want to learn more about him, check out Minisode 5, where Ashley talks about the heroes of the song. He was a good one. The men of the 1st and 3rd Divisions pushed through hell. At least this time, it was at night, but they were almost completely unsuccessful again. With the exception of the Royal Canadian Regiment, they were able to make it into the trench, but after three counterattacks, they needed to retreat to salvage what was left of them. Again, the Canadians failed to take the trench and were worn down beyond belief. After months of fighting at the Somme and some 20,000 casualties, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions of the Canadians were removed from the front line. Finally. But that doesn't mean that it's over, even for the Canadians. The trench, Regina Trench, when I say the trench, it's Regina Trench, still needed to be taken. 
So the fourth division was brought in to try to do what the others couldn't. So Ashley talked about the fourth division a little bit back in episode four, the one about Mount Sorel and St. Elois. They were a newly formed division that was made up of some units that were already there and some that were coming over shortly. They had the 10th, 11th, and 12th Brigade and the 67th Pioneer Battalion, along with some artillery, engineering, and medical support units here at the Somme. Their commander was Major General David Watson, and he was a newspaper editor from Quebec City. He was a good hockey player and an experienced soldier who had fought at Ypres. And he was really well suited for the position, but his skills weren't the only reason that he was promoted. He had a bestie. And Ash, do you know who that bestie was? I am going to take a wild guess (laughs) and say Sam Hughes. Oh, yeah. It's our (laughs) old friend, Sam. Oh, that old curmudgeon is making another appearance in our lives here. (laughs) I love that word. I do too. It reminds me of, I think it's uh, the movie A River Runs Through It. They say something about somebody being a curmudgeon in that. Oh, really? Oh, I love that movie. Oh, me too. Brad Pitt at his best. Yep. (laughs) So uh, Hughes kind of paved the way for Watson, but in a really shocking plot twist. After Watson was appointed to divisional commander, he basically threw up the middle finger at Hughes and refused to give his Sam Hughes's friends command positions. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that Sticking tipped him. him right off. <laughs> oh, it did. He just fumed. And this was just shortly before he, I think he was fired as a minister. He got to stay in the House of Commons, but he got fired. So he was just not pleased. Uh, It was a huge ego blow to Hughes, and he was blocked from interfering with the court by Bing. Um, I don't know why Watson all of a sudden had this huge grudge. Maybe he was, like, using Hughes to move up the ladder and then finally just couldn't put up with him anymore. But, yeah, he had this grudge, and um, Hughes' brother was actually caught up in this grudge as well. He was the commander of the 10th Brigade, and in 1917, Watson fired him for his lack of command at the Somme. Wow. Yeah, we got some drama Uh, here. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) We got some soap opera tea. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I like it, and it's against Sam Hughes, which we've had problems with in the past, so that's Mm -hmm. all right. So the 4th was originally assigned to some quieter areas in Belgium when they were first formed to kind of dip their toes in rather than jump into the deep end. But nothing, no matter what they saw Belgium, could prepare them for what they were about to dive into. The only benefit they had uh, coming in at this point in our timeline was that some of the kinks had been ironed out before they had to be engulfed into this horrible battlefield. The commanders finally woke up to the idea that attacking in straight line formations was a bad idea. So at this point during the psalm, they instructed their officers and soldiers to hold looser formations and come in. They, they would still come in waves, but they didn't. They could break apart from each other and they could kind of stagger themselves a bit. Um, and to move around strong points to surround them and then have the mopping up crews come in and really shut them down so they could gain farther ground. 
Uh, this was all good that the higher-ups were learning these tactics, but there had to be a trickle-down effect. So to teach these men that had been, it had been drilled into their head for two years now how they were supposed to move on the battlefield and how the officers were supposed to teach them how to do that, that took some time. So it wasn't like an overnight snap that this was going to work, but it was in motion at this point, at least. But at this point, the weather was really starting to turn into the cold October rain that added to the ominous, desolate landscape. Lieutenant A.K. Harvey, who came in with the 4th Division, said, On the way down, I began to realize that our first experience in Belgium was almost child's play in comparison to what we were going into. So he knew when he saw it that it was that was a whole different experience. Say so you know it's bad when you think Belgium is cakewalk. Yeah, but remember, this part in Belgium was a little bit quieter. They weren't, like, sent into Ypres. Oh, in oh okay. Whole nastiness. This was a little bit later, so it was just kind of a little bit of relief on the lines here or there. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so it, it was a huge shock for these guys. Uh, the artillery, the Canadian artillery, um, they were effectively, at this point, given carte blanche with their shells. They were told not to let up until each section of the trench was completely obliterated. The Germans were starting to get worn down with the constant barrages that they were just raining down on top of them. And one German soldier said, We hover more or less in danger of death, and we have no longer any chance of getting out. May it all just come to an end. How? I don't care. So he just is sick of this. Mm -hmm. On October 21st, the 10th and 11th Brigades were sent into battle following a barrage that left Almost nothing of the targeted section of Regina Trench. Uh, It was a 550-meter stretch, and they just bombed the hell out of it. And at 12.05 p.m., they left their trench and waded through the mud, sometimes hip-deep, towards their objective, behind their artillery cover. And within 15 minutes, they had taken it, and there was really little resistance at that point. So finally, we're seeing a little bit more more positive reactions here and they could they could finally have some more success yeah with regina specifically three days later another push was set for the same section of regina trench that the canadians couldn't capture on october 8th so this had a little bit of nastiness behind it and a little bit of you know revenge too they knew that that the other canadians couldn't take it so they wanted to get there um their luck was almost as bad unfortunately this time around and they were forced to retreat back to their trenches The weather made a turn for the worse, and the rain made the mud even more uninhabitable than it was, and nobody would have been able to make it across no man's land without sinking past their necks. So they waited for colder weather to freeze the ground so they could actually move there. By November 10th, the ground was passable again, and an assault was planned for midnight. The men of the 46th, 47th, and 102nd moved into their jumping-off trenches to be closer to, to their objective, but they were still behind a creeping barrage. They followed the rain of shells closely and fought the survivors of the artillery with their bayonets. There was little resistance and the Germans retreated to a secondary line. Finally, the Allies could say that Regina Trench had been taken, or at least what was left of it, which was basically nothing. So I don't know why they waited so long for such a heavy bombardment, but this time it finally worked because They just, it was a hole in the ground at that point. There was no trenches left. But we still have one 
more push here. Oh, boy. It's a small one. I, I swear it's only like <laughs> I've got like 10 lines of it. It's oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the last assignment that the Canadians had at the Somme was to take Desire Trench, which was less than a kilometer north of Regina. Again, the 10th and 11th Brigades were sent in to do the dirty work, along with some of the British divisions. On November 18th, that ended up being the last major offensive at the Somme, and thankfully it was considered a success. But I don't know about you, Ashley, but I am questioning that definition of success. I know they took their objective, and they could finally call an end to this massive offensive, but there were so many casualties. In that last bit of time, the fourth, when the 4th came in, they added 4,311 casualties to the over 20,000 that had already happened to the first three divisions. Yeah, that's a lot. 24,000. So yeah, it was just, just huge. And that's just the Canadians. Yes. The British, that's nothing to say of the British and even the Germans. Because I know the Germans are the enemy here. But that doesn't mean that they deserve to suffer that many casualties. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah, uh, so there were, in the British Empire, there were 420,000 casualties. The French had 194,000. And the Germans had 440,000 casualties. So that was just over a million casualties. Oh my gosh, within the span of a couple months. Mm -hmm. Yikes. I do have to remind everybody, though, that casualties don't mean deaths. Right. That deaths can, are part of the casualty count, but they don't mean deaths. But still, my gosh, that is a lot of injured and dead men. Yeah, that's right. So I guess, Shauna, the question I have for you is, do you think the Battle of the Somme was a success or was it a disaster? Uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's hard to define success. Yeah, they got what they, well, they made their objectives in the end. They pushed the Germans back, but Haig still didn't have his breakthrough that he wanted. And mm -hmm. like you said, over a million casualties. Was it worth it? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't make that call even for myself. I I just think it was all ridiculous, but... Well, a lot of you know, wars are completely say? ridiculous, yeah. but yeah. Well, what do you say? Like, was it success? I, I mean, I think it was mostly counted as a disaster, and but it was also the only reason that they had a lot of innovation here and that, you know, future battles could be successes because they learned so much from this horrible, nasty situation that happened. Right. I heard on the home front, a lot of newspapers considered this battle a disaster, um, whereas the soldiers on the ground considered it more of a success. I'm kind of more inclined to say, taking casualties aside, it was a success and capturing quite a bit of ground that they needed to push through. Um, they were also successful in diverting a lot of Germans out of Verdun, uh, which was kind of partly the reason they had the Somme. Now, I mean, 
Verdun didn't end until December, but yeah, it's a tough one. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's any right answer here. No, I don't think there is either. That's kind of why I asked the question. Um and yeah. even historians don't have a consensus on whether it was a success or not. Um so yeah. But um one thing I did want to mention and uh cuz it's not really pertinent to our conversations, but uh Falkenhayn was actually replaced in August by Paul von Hindenburg at this point in the war. And I also want to highlight we're only halfway through the war. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a (laughs) lot of battles to go and they are not going to be much easier. Luckily, like I said, they, they have some innovations and this is considered like the worst disaster of World War I. So, I mean, it can only go up from here. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, and two, I did want to just highlight as well that um, Sam Hughes was uh, let go on November 9th of 1916, as Shauna mentioned. Just wanted- Oh, that's so diplomatic. He was fired. Well, he was asked to resign. which is the polite way of saying you're fired in politics yeah i mean essentially what happened like by this time in the war the canadians had largely um their own command over the cef but it was kind of in chaos like disorganization and uh yeah sam hughes was um sent over there to sort of help clean things up which he never did. And then he went overseas and did a whole bunch of other things. And then he went back in August and Prime Minister Borden's like, I need a report on how you were going to fix this. And he like ignored it. <laughs> and then he ended up setting up his own little like um, council and Borden's like, I'm done. Like I've had enough. He actually said he is being more wrongheaded and stupid stupid as ever and he <laughs> stripped all his responsibilities away and gave them <laughs> to somebody else um and Hughes was actually asked to come home but um yeah of course Hughes responded by writing a letter to Borden <laughs> criticizing him <laughs> uh, uh yeah and accusing him of joining like a nest of conspirators and What could this man possibly say to defend himself after cardboard boots and shovel shields and everything that he did? I don't know, man. I don't know. It's funny, though, because Senator Sir George Foster, when he heard about (laughs) he was being let go, he said, the nightmare is over. <laughs> but like you said, Shauna, it wasn't over because he still remained in government and he was there for a while. And the reason he actually got the boot from the government in the end is because he came after Arthur Curry in a later, like in one of the later battles that had happened. And that was the end. Well, because Curry's a favorite, so exactly. I'm like, yeah. don't you don't go up against Curry? Nah, no. Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we don't have to talk about him no more. <laughs> no, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. That was well, a long one. It was. But the psalm is over. And That's we'll right. continue to move into 1917 after this. And if you're still with us, thank you for listening. <laughs> yes. That was a lot. Please remember to find us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook. And you can listen to us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and there's one more. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. <laughs> And if you want to do something nice for us, leaving us a review helps so much. And we would love to hear from you guys. Thank you for listening. I'm going to bed. Me Good night. too. Good night. <laughs>